Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new X's for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern Marvel's Cronus Gaming Classics and Hellfire. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, and you can check the show out on Twitter at X's for Podcast and at X's for Podcast.com. Like I said, today's XI4P premiere is all about Hellfire. It is a heat wave in the Northeast, so it is hotter than Hellfire out, and today we're here to celebrate the gala. Now, 2021's gala kind of lasted for like weeks, and it was issues and issues, and I felt like as a producer and editor on the show, it took me months to get through all of the Hellfire Gala material. This year's Hellfire Gala is very different in that it all sort of happened in one issue with a lot of spillover instead of happening over the course of months. And, you know, we talk a lot in the course of this segment and this episode about how it feels like the Hellfire Gala from 2021 is still reverberating through our halls. It's almost impossible to understand how the Hellfire Gala that gave us Arako could be followed up one actual calendar year year later with stories that do not possibly feel like they could have been a year after Arako first joined Mutantdom. So we have a lot of perspective and thoughts on how this Hellfire Gala relates to not just the previous Hellfire Gala, but how it relates to the overall picture of comics in general. We also have some other amazing content for you. Like first up, we're going to talk Immortal X-Men with the gala. Then like I said, we have a number of gala opinions and we're going to bring you some new mutants at the end of the episode. So you definitely want to stick around for this entire XI4 premiere and let's kick things off right away with a look at immortal x-men number four and the hellfire gala special from this year and we hope you survive the experience Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, your premier comics podcast for modern marvels, chrono skimming classics, and stink bomb teleportation. I'm TK, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. I'm Josh Will, you can find me on Twitter at asleepatthewheel, W-E-I-L, and at asleepatthewheel.com. And I'm Steven, you can find me over on Twitter at Steven of Wonder, and over on Facebook as an admin for the House of North Star Group. Hey everybody, I'm Jake. You can find me on Twitter at Omega Sentinel. That's O-H Mega Sentinel. Hey everybody, it's Nico. You guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And like diamonds, I'm forever. And I'm Jonah. And you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at Peak Jonah. That's P-E-A-K. And we hope you survive this experience. Just like Sinister was able to get out of this wacky situation by throwing some stink bombs and going through a portal when Destiny was like, no, 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 Sinister, don't you run away now. And from that very apt description, I hope you can all deduce that we are talking about Immortal X-Men number four, written by the amazing Kieran Gillen, with art by Michelle Bandini, color artist David Curio, with letters by VCs Clayton Cowles, design credits shared by Tom Muller and Jay Bowen, and just a host of gorgeous covers on this one, but the main one by Mark Brooks. Really an extension to the Hellfire Gala experience that we got this year, and as part of that, I think one of the main things we wanted to talk about before we delve into 
into the issue was what everybody's highlight was from the Hellfire Gala. I honestly only really had one. I would say that I had one main highlight from it, and that is that when Emma and Scott dance, Emma leads. I am very positive on a lot of the visuals. In particular, I just really want to go out of my way to say that I think that the interior framing on a lot of the shots, especially in those early few pages, did a really great job creating a visual context that made this feel a little bit more special. It almost read to me like this should have been the issue that transitioned Marauders into X-Men, both by Jerry Duggan, but instead it came out here well into the X-Men run, and this could have just felt like any issue. But the visual structure of a lot of those pages, a lot of the panels, added an element that elevated the storytelling from perhaps an episode of television to a film. And I appreciated that. One in particular that really touched me was when Wolverine and Spider-Man talk about Berlin, which is a reference to Wolverine versus Spider-Man, a beautiful one-shot 1980s comic. Really, truly great deep cut, thousand percent. A good story and a great callback to their history as heroes fighting side by side, but like somewhat antagonistic. It's really interesting seeing that reference and I'm I'm hopeful that that's something that Zeb Wells is going to play with in the Amazing Spider-Man run that he's working on. I like when Emma and Steve talk. I actually think they have pretty interesting chemistry from one another. Truthfully, it's a weird ship, but I ship them together. Make that the canon couple. Well, doesn't Emma remind Steve of his mother? Wasn't that the thing from last year's Hellfire Gala? She read his mind. Yeah, yeah, it was. Well, yes, but that didn't seem to stop her this time from flirting with him. So you know what I say? (laughs) Go get it, mommy. I mean, he seemed more into it this time around. And I like it more than I like it with Tony, so. There were actually some outfits that I really enjoyed. Surprisingly, I thought Tony looked really good. The coloring really spoke to me. The way his shades were drawn and his suit really worked for me. I thought a couple of the outfits for this year's Hellfire Gala were really strong. And I actually thought some of the concepts, I was like, I'm really digging a lot of what the looks look like here. I have to give Marvel Comics as a whole credit for what they've done with Iron Man. And I don't mean any of the stuff going on in his personal book or with Hellcat. Just the fact that like, I don't know, three, four years ago in the big giant Mark Wade, you know, history of Marvel Comics or whatever it was called, that they had one little text box in one panel about a future wedding of Emma Frost and Tony Stark. And now every goddamn time years later that Tony Stark appears in the X-Men book, like my asshole puckers, and I'm deathly afraid that this is the moment it's all going to go there. So I'm, I'm very grateful and relieved at the end of this issue that it didn't happen. But man, that still pops up in me like they have placed that fear deep inside of me and it, it it activates every single time he shows up in a book. I am trying so hard to make people forget that by never ever uh, mentioning it. So that just felt like such a such a kick in the gut <laughs> to even bring it but, up. But I mean, they, they go out of their way to mention that she's financially ruined in Immortal X-Men and we know that it's Avengers versus X-Men versus, I mean, I don't know that it has to be a romantic marriage. It could be a marriage of convenience. They don't ever even have to touch each other's naughty bit. I mean, they could. They're both beautiful. But, you know, it's I agree because that is like one of my my canon Bibles. You know, you can, you know, you can when you have to go to court for any reason, you can swear on whatever. I'd probably swear on that. And I think that line is up 
there. It's a great line because, man, everybody's asshole puckers so far up into them, they can kiss their own brains. And it is ridiculous. Also, Sink looks super hot. That should be everybody's number two. That actually was going to be my number one. That Sink moment is fucking absurd. I have like head canon fantasies for characters and I'm like conceptually, you know, Cyclops and Logan are super hot, whatever. But like on panel, looking at most characters, no matter how they're depicted, they are still drawn and I just lack the imagination to be like, that's a hot man a lot of the time. I've I've always thought of him as a teenager, so the idea of Daddy Sink never occurred to me. But now... Man, did it blow my mind. I would die for Daddy Sink. Yeah, in a heartbeat. He's just absolutely beautiful. Have never wanted to fuck a comic book character so much in my life. That moment was neck and neck with my other one, which is the five rushing to Proteus and saying the five are a family and getting in battle stance with Egg right at the front for absolutely no reason because he cannot be effective in that battle, but he just loves his little Scottish omnipotent buddy so much that he's going to be there to defend him. I thought it was super sweet. I thought it was that's like to me that's the secret heart of Krakoa. You know we're seeing we're going to talk about all the stuff that's going on with the council and why it so frustrates us that this is the group that is making so many decisions and makes us wonder like is Krakoa a good idea if this is what has to happen to be there and every time I see the five together it is a consistent reminder that there is something so much more to Krakoa than what whatever the politics being played by Xavier and Beast and everybody else is, that there are people like this that are forming families and coming together and loving each other in a place where they can feel secure and thrive. And it was just a beautiful moment. It did get eclipsed by how incredibly hot Everett is. Can we talk about his awesome costume too, which is clearly like the the color of it is clearly a loving reference to his old Generation X uniform, which I I don't know about y'all, but I've always thought those were the best school uniforms that any any of the students had. Yeah. I'm right there with you. It's my number two. I love the 2004 era Hellions uniforms and that whole line of new X-Men Academy X kids. Everything's just a little bit Olympic, just a little bit fashion, just a little bit too good to be real. I'm a big fan. Yeah, the red and white uh, Hellion outfits are probably my absolute favorites, but I I do love the red Gen X suits. The thing that I loved about the Generation X costume was that it was a merging of the Xavier and Hellions school uniforms. Yeah. It was, it's you know you had the red and you had the classic yellow mash them together and you get generation x who aren't really fully xavier's not really fully emma's they were their own special brew absolutely and speaking of emma back in the pages of immortal x-men homegirl can't sleep unless she's in her diamond form got a lot on her mind she's got a lot to worry about how she's going to fit into this dress what's she going to do about cyclops I love that this is, the timing has worked out in such a way that we get to have this be Emma's focus issue for Immortal X-Men, knowing that that's been a really big part of how this whole series is going to play. I love that they worked this out, you know, due to delays and supply chain logistics and everything else that's been going on. A lot of timing stuff has gotten missed and it's been really unfortunate, but we got to have this one moment where Emma's Immortal issue lines up perfectly with what's going on in Hellfire Gala, and it was really seamless and I felt because this Hellfire Gala was just one issue and not a whole event, having a supporting book really helped to elevate a moment that otherwise might have fallen a little bit flat for me without this supplementary book. Yeah, I actually liked this as the Hellfire issue. Yeah, more. my turn. <laughs> 
so uh and and of course i love anything where emma's the focus so i didn't i didn't altogether dislike the actual gala issue but this was more it for me really can't stop thinking there's a theme song for immortal x-men and it's really orchestral and dynamic and it's really wide and as the credits play the focus character gets bumped up to the front and then immediately after that it's with nathaniel essex the sinister and then depending on how sinister heavy the issue is the next three or four cards are sinister and then everyone else in the issue and then at the end it's with nathaniel essex the sinister and sinister and he just puts a few more of himself it's like too many cooks but it's just sinister inserting more hymns because no matter whose issue it is it is co-starring sinister yeah i do think that this is predominantly the sinister book i am glad that these came out the same week i know that they have had since the start of COVID, issues with getting issues out you know when they're supposed to or in the order that they're supposed to that never worse than with inferno and trial of magneto but these two issues hellfire gala and immortal four absolutely had to be released at the same time there is no first second reading order these are an a b that occur at the same time and you know they dance between the raindrops of each other they had to be released same week it would have been a disservice to the story overall if they had not been i completely agree with what you're saying josh these two stories did need to be near one another part of me was slightly disappointed that the hellfire gala had to take a major backseat for a lot of what's currently going on on krakoa to really get the for us to not really fall too far behind in terms of pacing because if we spent so much time on the hellfire gala we probably would have been like we're we're spending so much time here. We're, we're, there, there's more important things at play right now. I am a little disheartened because I, when the Hellfire Gala last year was probably one of my favorite events in terms of how it was marketed. And it's the, you know, Marvel dropping these costumes, all of these covers of like fashion spreads of these different heroes in their Hellfire Gala outfits. It, it was quite a magical time. And you saw so many fans create their own versions of like, this is what I think this character would wear. We saw artists talk about um, the different ideas and costumes costumes that they came up with their characters and their process behind them. It was a really magical and fascinating time to be part of a comics fandom to see how everybody was so enticed by this event of like, what's going to happen? What is this going to be like? And it does look ring a little disappointing that this year's party really kind of came by in a flash because we have to focus on other things, which is fine. It, it happens. I really did kind of miss that kind of fanfare that everybody kind of had over last year's Hellfire Gala to this year's. It was a bit underwhelming. I knew that we were going from an event to a one shot but it truly just felt like the Hellfire Gala issue could have been the next issue of Immortal or the next issue of X-Men or the next issue it could have been any of the X books just with you know elevated art. I mean I think a big issue is that it happened too soon (laughs) it is an exact like year from when we had the last one and a year could not have moved forward in the comic. Yeah that's a 5-1. Yeah the dilation is five to one so for them this really should be september and for us it's a year but they were still clearing out old hellfire variants when these hellfire variants started hitting the shops yeah and hellfire isn't just a new variant we do you know when i was looking at the credits for this issue and i was like oh my god is phil noto on the quiet council (laughs) wait What? And so then I'm, oh, that's their variant. Oh, were there only four main variants for this? That's crazy. Oh, it's because there's so many Hellfire variants for everything, breathing on each other's dicks all the time. It's it's too much. And paper is still not an infinite resource again. It's still not growing on trees yet, you guys. It's still (laughs) stuck on boats. 
in a weird way, it both snuck up on us and also didn't. Duggan's X-Men, which is something that I know we've talked about in his issues, but the way that those 12 issues in between the two Hellfire Galas were planned and delivered, it really felt like he was still introducing us to the team and getting around to give everyone their like first POV. Here's why I'm an X-Men. We went straight from like introducing the team to what? It's been a year. Let's see who sticks around for the next round. Yeah, I really miss the days when we had an actual team for like 20 something odd issues and it we're just moving so fast everything is so fast paced in these books now like even a year is a literal year yeah i completely agree along the line too we're getting a lot of limited series and and for me i've been feeling like these stories have not been getting the runway they need to really take off and unfold yeah it's it's hard to see with this team having eight members on it and the way that dugan just laid out the last year to be like so what we're gonna spend the next two to three months in acts and then you'll introduce each of these characters and then we'll hellfire gal again there's a lot going on here and it still feels like we're trying to get the po- like there's so much for the post inferno era to like settle the destiny of x era to like settle and you know we we just got Sabretooth kind of caught up we have and now we're jumping right into judgment day we're changing the x-men team there's and god the moira stories like we were desperate we were like (laughs) starving for moira it felt like forever and now like and after the turn that just doesn't feel i don't want it take it back i don't want it that's the thing moira fuck she's here again moira's story we she was built up to be something so much more and she was kind of taken care of for the most part like in this issue you know what i mean like it just feels like that story ended up being a little bit more of a letdown you know and then with the way Duggan does tell his stories you know and eight people on the team you know we're gonna get the spotlight issues and then and then anything else what four issues left for actual you know a a more in-depth storyline like is that gonna be enough before I don't know inevitably next year's gala it feels a little bit like that move from like Secret Wars to Secret Wars 2 where you had this like large integral event that pulled everyone in and was like the story for a while and then the sequel well it just didn't hit the same way it it was like happening in various branches of various comics but it didn't really integrate it didn't hit it wasn't nearly as popular it was more it was underwhelming and i think there's really something to be said about the excellence of your secret war comparison you know what made the first secret wars work was that it was 12 issues that took place in the space between two panels everywhere every fucking where just Mm -hmm, came back mm -hmm. a year later and the fallout was the excitement and then with secret wars 2 everything was the mini series and it was so convoluted because everything wanted a bite of that success that launched a toy line that had the potentiality of selling the rights to things to as animated series i mean i and- feel like shooter wanted everything to have a bite of success no one else wanted the beyonder to come in and like fuck up their book for three months <laughs> i'm so sorry i sp- i more meant that uh, corporate identity wanted 
wanted everything to be part of this because then you'd have to buy everything. Yes. And that was the push. And so then last Hellfire Gala, as silly as this sounds, by making it every book, it sort of felt like the beginning of Encanto. Like everybody was getting ready for the gala and everybody was so excited to see what was going to happen. And the whole gala was just, it did go on too long by the end. I was so fucking sick of editing us talking about that fucking gala. I couldn't do it anymore. (laughs) I was seriously hitting throw the laptop like moments. It was getting dark. And so I'm really happy that this one is just like one thing, but because it was one thing that affects everything in a weird reverse of Secret Wars, because it's one moment and everything else is jumping out of it. I'm like, this doesn't feel engaging. It feels like you're making Immortal X-Men fill in the gaps left by the Hellfire Gala not having 40 more pages. That's a bad idea to plan that way. But having done that, the fact that this is Emma's issue does give us a little bit of beautiful synergy for that plan to have the Hellfire Gala not quite be resolved unless you read Immortal X-Men because it really is Emma's event and it's a really important thing to her. And we see that she's stressing about it at the start of the issue. We see her getting ready in the midst of dealing with this article being published in the Daily Bugle and the revelation about resurrection and then the culmination of it being her having the PETA, you know, red paint moment on her fur, but it's not in reference to Emma's fashion as it might have been like during the Morrison era if you saw something like that. This In this case it really is in relation to the decisions that she has made in order to better her people and seeing that juxtaposed with the human ambassador being like, hey, start thinking about how you're going to need to do this for humans if you want to keep up whatever goodwill you have with us. This is a really important moment. I think Hellfire Gala being tied to this benefits Immortal X-Men far more than it benefits the Hellfire Gala, but I am okay with it insofar as it really does continue to shine a light on how and why Emma is both so important and still such a human and vulnerable character. I feel so bad for Emma. She got shit on constantly throughout the two issues. I love the spotlight as an Emma stan, you know, I'm eating well, but dear lord, the passive aggression from all of the dudes in the issue treating her like absolute crap, Tony especially, who I just wanted to punch in the face constantly. Like, kind of blaming her for Xavier and Magneto's decisions, which I still don't even disagree with personally. Yes, she takes a lot of the responsibility, she is able to woman up and do what she needs to do, but at a certain point, when what is too much responsibility? Responsibility for her to take on emotionally. You know what I mean? Kimbra's Top of the World starts playing and it's just that they build me up to be beaten. The most egregious crime against my queen was, you know, what Nico said earlier, that Sinister came in and stole her POV issue. I mean, I love Gil and Sinister, but I mean, you start off with such great Emma and then like that didn't happen to Hope, that didn't happen to Destiny. I mean, this whole issue talking about how she sleeps in diamond form at night, I think is a really beautiful illustration of like, she's kind of at her threshold because I think that's such a profound response to to the trauma of having all this laid on her to the responsibility that she's bearing, that she can't sleep without her defenses up. I think it's a really beautiful illustration of what's, what's going on in her 
head. You know, Heavy is the head that wears the crown, and Emma is, for all intents and purposes, the leader of mutantdom right now. She's she's taken that from Eric and Charles, and she's running the council. I really just love the way this issue gets in her head. One moment I liked that I'm still iffy on because the X office doesn't seem to have a consistent way they want to depict this, but I liked that Emma was like, Scott talks about how it's always, I'm always so cold at night when I'm in my diamond form. And it's like, is this current Scott talking about this, or is this Scott in the past talking about when you fell asleep in your diamond form? Is this a new thing? Are Scott and Emma still seeing each other? It seems like they may be or maybe not. I'm not quite sure what they're doing with them. Yes, TK. I ranted about this on Twitter for yes. a while because it really fucking drove me nuts because Duggan very clearly does not have the same view about this as anybody mm-hmm. else, and the fact that he wrote it so strongly into his issue really bothered me. One of her insecurities is feeling like she's not quite up there with Jean, which on top of everything else we've seen, including weirdly in Duggan's X-Men, Scott being naked leaning against Emma, they absolutely still have a relationship. They are absolutely more than friends. I really think it is borderline textual that they're still having sex, but they are more than friends. They are, they have a, a deep relationship. This issue did some really important work in establishing how that functions in a world where their purposes are sometimes like weirdly at odds, but they will always have to come together because they're both kind of attacking how mutants are going to fit into society from two different angles. And I thought this was a really important moment for the relationship between the two of them, juxtaposing that against, you know, talking about Gene's fucking hall pass in hellfire really drove me nuts the throwaway line of though this is how he fucks me yeah i hated that i was so mad about that because this is a really this was a really important turn for these characters this was the mutant take on relationships we're getting away from human conceptions of what what constitutes a an authentic romantic relationship or whatever and the the walk back of that just feels so straight I was very incensed about that because it really, you know, as as a polyamorous person, it upset me to see the stronger stance taken in Hickman's X-Men, but to see that walked back, it hurts. That's what we can kind of really put out here and confirm is with the majority of this room being polyamorous people, Hickman understood polyamory. Duggan showed it somewhat. I mean, that's the kind of the confusing thing was Duggan had Emma and Scott as a, a legitimately like high entanglement polyamorous couple in cable in his own cable book but but yeah no some of this feels like a mono person writing poly now or not really understanding it which is you know what you get when you know you do that it's the same reason why you know we finally reached a place where you know we have fewer cishet white men writing queer and people of color characters because you know it can get a little cringy and you know i think most of us poly folks felt that with dugan writing scott and emma in in that last issue yeah that hall pass comment took me so far out of it i just oh my god i had so much trouble like reconnecting with the story after that tell me you don't understand polyamory without telling me you don't understand polyamory absolutely absolutely Um, it was a moment that really confused me because there there seems to be some internal inconsistencies of how they want to portray things what the actual truth is and you know everybody's relationship and polyamory does not look the same for everybody who practices it and it's going to look very different for any polyamorous couple you talk to or look at but there, there should be some through lines that whatever you're writing should 
come across as the same themes and the same truth. I want to talk about that. Emma, this past year, has gone through so much shit that it's almost bizarre. There, um, We haven't talked about it yet, but this is also following the downfall and ramifications of what was going on in Devil's Reign. She has to come off this huge political scandal started by Kingpin that now she's dealing with this whole other huge scandal, and it doesn't seem like Emma really gets to have a break. Emma is kind of forced to be working 24-7, and it's very damaging, I imagine, to her psyche that she uh, has to sleep in diamond form because she literally doesn't feel safe at any point. Even in her high throne tower that I assume nobody else has access to, that she doesn't deem it, she does not feel safe. And th- this is, I'm, uh, if I'm not mistaken, this is on the private island that she, Magneto, and Namor all collaborated and cahooted together to create this utopia for this little castle for herself that nobody else can really come to and she still feels threatened she still feels like she's constantly on guard and it is to say that the character that doesn't feel safe and doesn't feel protected even in her own sanctuary has her book and narrative and story intermingling with the main drama comparative to how everybody else had it bleed in a little bit but Emma's story this Emma story isn't about Emma and it's not even about Emma's role in the Quiet Council it's just kind of looking at Emma Emma sleeping really and saying this character does not feel safe this character is at her end and really needs some help she even she talks to the Stepford Cuckoo saying you know uh, just look at what's happening girls next year this will be your responsibility and they straight up tell her we wouldn't do this even if you paid us even her daughters don't want her responsibilities and her daughters literally worship the ground she walks on it's very telling that the Marvel office try to tell us that maybe we're stretching Emma just a little too thin and the character needs like a br- give her like an issue where she can go on vacation I think it'll be interesting to see what they do with, like, Xavier. Because the one thing I'm thinking is Emma got a lot of feature in Inferno. And I think between Inferno and Devil's Reign, we have gotten to see a lot of Emma. And we really do see that she's kind of suffering right now. The thing about Inferno is it's always about women scorned by men refusing to take it anymore. And Emma is included in that. I mean, it's really, you know, it's supposed to be about Moira, but then to another extent, Mystique in Destiny, Emma is kind of the fourth corner of that insofar as she refuses to continue to go along with Charles and Eric's bullshit and getting her to that place has really set the character at a point where, of course, she doesn't feel safe because the entire reason that she went into all of this was trusting that she was collaborating with these two men with whom she has in some form or another always collaborated regarding the rearing of mutant children and she now sees that she's entirely alone with them and the people that she now needs to look at to trust, the trust is just not there for various reasons. And it's all about building that back up. I think we got a lot of setup for Emma that couldn't have happened in this book because we didn't have time for it. But I'll be interested to see what other characters who have done a lot before Immortal get in terms of their own personal time versus plotline time, because it just might be a matter of, you know, economy of storytelling. Even though we only got bookends of the Emma story here. The Michelle Bandini art was gorgeous. And, you know, the just the silent kind of 
of pained emotion on Emma's face, you know, the emotion coming out of the eyes, you know, what she drew there was beautiful. And I would love and hope we get to see more of her on this book and on Emma things. Yeah, we're getting a very emotionally complex tapestry from Emma right now. I really loved her interactions with Firestar and how poorly they went and how disappointed she seemed coming off of that. Patty Lapone's yellow diamond on Steven Universe saying how diamonds are tough but brittle. There are no bad Patty Lapone references. I think about that a lot in reference to Emma in diamond form because she's not indestructible and she's still emotional. I mean, I guess it's supposed to shut down her emotion. I'm not really sure on that point. At times it seems like when when they're in diamond form, the cuckoos and Emma don't have access to their emotions and at other- She is supposed to be emotionally numb. And also at times it's when she's most psychically vulnerable because she is physically so powerful and at other times her mind is completely closed off. It's kind of whatever you need for the story. But the great irony has always been that, you know, she's emotionally closed off in diamond form as opposed to all the rest of the time. Where she's so emotional (laughs) and open to everybody, of course. It's a fine time for Emma storytelling. I'm really excited for, they keep calling this Destiny of X, but for me, it's Emma's X. This is definitely uh, Emma's like best era. I only worry that when so much spotlight is put on her and a lot of this pressure is put on her, we get stories like AVX and then IVX. But I think the thing that is important to remember is anybody elevated to a central position in any line is going to then be responsible for being the brand bearer. And we're seeing a lot of brand bearing fall to the weight of the Duggan Treehouse X-Men, which is fine. But the Duggan Treehouse X-Men don't really present a complicated moral quandary the way Gillen's Immortal X-Men do. In that regard, it's kind of like the X-Men that they're brandishing for brand purposes are an inherently weaker team in terms of the philosophical debate of what Krakoa is. In that way, X-Men by Duggan exists outside of the scope of the discussion of Axe, which is very much a philosophical debate. And the thing that sucks here, and that I am asking Emma Frost to do, is I am asking her to place herself in a position of harm's way, because I do not trust the narrative of X-Men to be a complex enough place for the philosophical debate of mutant rebirth. Because I don't know, I mean, I'm the biggest Ben Urich fan on the show, but he did kind of write an article that kind of felt like mutants discover recycling and (laughs) i don't know i think emma frost falling on the sword of brand bearer is a gift that only somebody as nuanced as emma frost could give i also think that her being brand bearer is kind of designed for deep cut x-men readers who are really committed where duggan's x-men is kind of meant for the people who say like oh x-men's gotten so weird i don't see myself in this book It's really meant to be a pretty fun, loose, not hyper story focused, not getting into the characters that for a lot of us are really important because we see them as representation and proof that the mutants are really diverse. X-Men, the book seems to really be about like being public facing in a way that is very lowest common denominator. Not always a bad thing. It's a huge line. We've got other books to do the work. I think a lot of us were expecting just based on how crazy this last three and four years have been that we were kind of doing away with those sorts of politics and demographic thinking, but it's a necessary
necessary part of comic books. And at this point, we've settled into something that's a little bit nice where the rest of us don't have to worry so much about the flagship X-Men team and who is the standard bearer for the mutants that people are going to be thinking about when they think about MCU mutants. We have people like Emma who are, when you're really digging in deep and you know the history and you've read everything, who are really the movers and shakers that you want to pay attention to? It's someone like Emma. Duggan's X-Men is, yes, it should be the most accessible book for a new reader. Like if someone's like, oh, hey, I haven't read comics in a while or, oh, hey, I haven't read X-Men or I heard it's good, you know, without having to go back and read every single issue of every title from Hox Pox forward, which is kind of what it feels like you need to know what's going on in, you know, Legion of X or Knights of X or Immortal X-Men sometimes. I love it. That's the deep storytelling you can only get if you've been following along every step of the way that, you know, I'm happy to have been following along every step of the way. But in order to keep selling these books, you have to be able to battle attrition. You have to be able to get new readers. I don't know that it really is doing that. I mean, the way Duggan's X-Men presents those main seven X-Men and yes, like the way that it is off Krakoa and in New York and these interacting, you know, set up to be the, you know, public face away from Krakoa outside of the Kong politics. Yes, that all is. But I mean, we've spent whole issues here going into like, who is this third lieutenant of the second wing of Orcus and Stasis stuff? And now, I mean, the, the last issues unable to be separated from Hellfire Gala and what's going on in Immortal right now, which does a disservice to, I mean, we need Marvel to be able to sell these books to a wider audience than just those of us who will fucking recognize deep cuts from 1980s one shots. I mean, speaking about a wider audience, this new team speaks more to a whiter audience because I'm very disappointed in this team, in this new one. It is so white. We have two people of color, two, one queer person. I mean, I understand, you know, they have to sell the book, but this feels, this feels kind of wrong to me. Those demographics are actually technically better than the previous team in some capacities, or at least the same. But because it seemed like we were doing so much work towards recognizing diversity, the fact that we, at best, maintained a status quo and did not take any risks or really go like, no, we're actually going to show you how diverse mutant culture and community and look and experience is. It feels like a step back where it is kind of just like treading water. And that's disappointing to a lot of us because we've just been taking these enormous steps. And it, even with those said enormous steps, like it still feels a lot of the time like we're not where we want to be in terms of diversity is so important to mutant culture and to the people who read the book that it just feels like if we're going to shuffle the team, why not do better? I love that you said one queer person. What do we think the communal headcanon on Ileana is these days? Where is it? Where is it landing at? I think she's ace. I read her as ace. I think that commentary she's made in the New Mutants book when Hickman was writing her poses that because she's like, oh, want to make out. I mean, Bendis wrote her as ace, Guggenheim wrote her as lesbian, Hickman wrote her as pan. Like, there is not a general consensus on what Ileana is. We do have a man of Native American ancestry on the team. We have one openly queer character. We have one queerish character. The big problem is that there's two whiteies that you can't bump off. 
And that really is the drag that Scott and Gene are so white. Like, I am totally not saying that I'm demanding that we do a Kyle Rayner. And Scott's like, wait a minute, my mom was Mexican? <laughs> like, that's not what I'm hoping for. I don't need Scott to wake up and be like, what do you know? But it's definitely something where like, if Gene could just be like, oh, we're a quarter Lebanese. Okay. And like, if we could just start running with that, something that does anything. Can't just be that you have a bunch of books with characters that fit minority statuses that you constantly cancel and you keep all of the straight white characters up at the front. And it's not just that right, exactly. you have to keep these two very, very white characters, these milquetoast characters in the team. It's that they are the unquestionable leadership core of the team, spotlight characters that, you know, don't disappear for five issues the way Sunfire did. It's also really odd because they nominated have like the Havoc moment is so disappointing because that's yeah. a spot that belongs to another character that can show some more diversity. They nominated Roxy. We really didn't need Iceman. We had a chance for a mutant of color who is queer, who also is a visibly mutated person. It just like the Havoc thing hurt, especially because it's essentially Forge being bitter about being nominated that makes it happen. And like to have that be a moment where maybe like that whole thing happened and then suddenly Havoc's like, no, I shouldn't get this nomination. I didn't really even want to do it. It was like a joke by Forge. And we get somebody who actually really needs to be on the team. That was my one of the weirder things about this Hellfire Gala, because the, the vote was made to be this big thing that it's these are the mutants are choosing their team. And this was not a vote. This is two people claiming they're going to be on the team in Iceman and Ileana and three other people getting nominations, but there wasn't an actual vote. Then this wasn't a vote. This was just who wants yeah. to be on the team? You're going to fight it out for it. Thank That's you, not Jonah. a vote. Yes. This, this, the entire setup of the X-Men, of what this X-Men team is supposed to represent, is the Krakoan people are choosing their team to represent Krakoa to save the world. Nobody was specifically voted for. I, I mean, I, I'm sorry, we were told that Gene, Scott, and Sink asked to be voted for again, and I guess everyone just was like, yeah, I guess you just vote for who was already there. Uh, unfortunately, isn't that what people already do in real life? But like, Incumbency is very difficult to unseat. I'm, so, I'm just so confused by this nomination process that wasn't an actual vote. I will say, uh, personally, I don't know a lot about Firestar, and I am kind of interested and excited to see how she's going to intermingle and mix with given this responsibility. I know she's a very unintended hot topic. It felt so weird. It's just a culmination of this issue just had to kind of be rushed and put on a little bit of the back burner to get the other story going. Yeah, it did not feel like an election at all. It just felt like, hey, I'm on the team. Deal with it. And beyond that, like, it just, because of the people that are now on the team it felt it just feels like the boxes were checked that's it it just felt like checking off boxes that's all it was to me i know a lot of the you know twitter community and the ex-twitter folks have been clamoring for you know some sort of acknowledgement or you know bringing back that you know emma killed firestar's horse back in the 80s back when she was you know a, a one note you know evil villain and we definitely got a lot of it over you know that came up multiple times over both of these two issues that we're covering here but i really kind of got the sense in that issue that like all Jerry Duggan knows about Firestar is that there was a four-issue miniseries back in the 80s. Like, did he not run through the wiki or see, like, all the other stuff she's done? Did he not realize that she was a key member of the Avengers during the Busaic and Perez run? Like, he made her this kind of wallflower who, you know, never
never got to be a hero because Emma was mean to her once. And like she went fucking toe to toe with Ultron. Like she has been an Avenger of the highest fucking order. Of the highest caliber. She's a cancer survivor. There are people that are really happy that Firestar won or lost. But what really came through to me was that nobody in the fandom put her on the ballot. That's the thing at the end of the day. She was put up against people she could have beaten. And it is not that they didn't see it coming because they saw what happened with Lorna last year. So now they can rely on the fact that the visual iconography of a character from the past is going to carry that character across the finish line. So I, if anything, think this is kind of a demotion for Firestar, who could be killing it over on Eren's Avenger, who could be nailing it over in Defenders Beyond. I think that Firestar is a great character with tons of promise and a phenomenal history and a varied potential future. But the design of putting her on the X-Men plays a lot of interference on a corporate level that already has 3D CAD designs for this character and sees that the X-Men are about to explode into the MCU in the next five years. And by reinserting Firestar into the X-Men at this pivotal moment, you're setting up the potentiality for having her come in with the mutants. And then she is a bright, fiery character. They don't need to worry about the human torch as much. I just think it re- uh, I just think it really states corporate involvement on a fundamental level. And like even in universe, she was basically given a public proposal which she cannot say no because she already just talked about that people on Krakoa are calling her a cop and don't like her so what is she supposed to say she gets a special nomination to represent Krakoa she's going to say no in front of quote unquote her people she's literally in a catch she's damned if she do she's damned if she don't and it just feels weird to do this to a character like if that was going to be the overall narrative and story like no matter what the Firestar was going to be on the team whatever at the end of the day I don't think it, it tend matters but you can make that story interesting you can make that conversation very fascinating and enjoyable to read but this character did not get any say in any of this and again and that plays very different if firestar is this you know teenage girl character who you know should have grown into a larger role with the x-men but because you know emma did her sideways you know once upon a time you know has kind of been left on the sidelines and hasn't had the chance to blossom but that's not who firestar is she's a fucking Avenger who went toe-to-toe with Ultron. I think my big parting shot on this issue is if it weren't for the fact that this is Kieran Gillen's upcoming crossover, I would feel really bad for Kieran Gillen because he has Sinister ripped out of this issue only to appear over in the pages of Eve of Judgment where he's just in a stasis tube, which that's where he goes, by the way. So anybody who's like, this is just like when Moira ran off for Spider-Man again, right? It's God, we went from a situation where like, I wish I had more Moira McTaggart and now I'm like I wish she'd get out of everyone's books so <laughs> I really just want to see Kieran Gillen get to keep running this fucking amazing ball because something Kieran Gillen does better than anybody is he makes a playlist the song might hit your ear fucking wrong at first but when you hear the next song or where it goes or how it flows with four together it's perfect I loved the mutant pellets that Sinister has Nightcrawlers to escape and then he took Jamie multiple mans to duplicate himself Give me more pellets. 
Karen Gillan is one of the writers who really understands Emma's voice. There aren't a lot of people who do her very well, but he seems to really, really do her justice, seems to really know what's going on inside of her head in a way that feels consistent with her biggest story beats from the past. And I'm really, really interested to see how he stretches her, how he pushes her, how he you know gets her to her breaking point. I wonder if Immortal X-Men is going to be the book where the whole Reed Richards issue comes to a head, because now she has that knowledge and I, I do think that Gillen does handle her very beautifully and I want to see how she handles that under his pen specifically. I've really enjoyed Duggan's take on her and I will gladly read more of Duggan's Emma but I am so happy to have another really lovely perspective on the character. And more importantly now the rest of the Marvel writing staff are allowed to use Fantastic Four characters without someone else throwing a hissy fit. Don't say more. <laughs> It does seem like they're getting a little bit of time in the Judgment Day storyline. So hopefully that'll allow for a little bit more integration and a chance to kind of resolve those technically not hanging plot threads, but I think we all just treat them like they're hanging because they're just not right. Hey everybody, Nico here again. Now that Immortal X-Men room was a little bit Immortal, a little bit Hellfire Gala. These next two clips are two of our amazing rooms of coverage that were focusing on different titles that took a couple of minutes to talk about what the Hellfire Gala did for them as readers, as people who deeply care about this line, and as members of this team. We hope you guys enjoy. Hey everybody, welcome back. There's fashion around, there is drama, there's intrigue. There's I, John Ham. There's John Ham. John Ham from Mad Men. <laughs> John Ham from Mad Men. And he is an ex of Emma Frost? I guess that means we're giving our quick insights into the Hellfire Gala issue. I'm Nathan, you can find me online at Twitter at Dazzler AOA, where I am counting all of the mutants who wore the same outfit. Hi, this is Raven, aka Dame Red Thread. And this is Juancho. <laughs> Hello, it's me, Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at Howdy Duda. That's H O W D Y D U D A. And I hope you survive the experience. Unlike my faith in the idea that this is actually a year from the previous Hellfire Gala in story, because let yeah. me tell you, like that took me out of it so much. I'm like, you're expecting me to believe a year of stories happened in yeah. between these events. And, like, yet, and yet we're not done doing a postmortem on the previous Hellfire Gala. Right. right. Okay, let, let's get into it. Because I think, like, for me, like my biggest. <clears throat> Huh, moment was Moira <laughs> fucking McTaggart. Okay, mm. so like the, she has gone from you know the the Din Mother and Excalibur, the fun character that you know like supported all mutants and was a little tough at the shadow king possessed moira who ran a danger room that was really brutal <laughs> to this cat petting mustache twirling <laughs> and she is now <laughs> moira has gone gone evil and decided hey let's bring spider-man into this let me use mary jane watson to get into the gala 
And they couldn't even keep Mary Jane's face consistent. This felt not slapdash, but it did not feel well thought out. It didn't feel like it really paid attention to the last year, let alone the last year's gala. The fashion was decent. Steve wore his exact same suit over again in some fashion. I don't know. Just it. He looks very yeah. Homelanderish to me in this. Oh, oh God, I can't see that now. <gasps> I'm sorry. Oh, no. No, there was a lot to read. It was very text heavy and and there was just a shit ton of story packed in there, but not in a fashion that is easily digested, nor did it seem to really pay attention to a lot of the character growth that has gone on in other stories. And it just felt like Moira used to be a very compelling villain because she was exceedingly sympathetic. And you could feel her pain at having to relive these lifetimes, but being able to do nothing else. And you could, like, you didn't like her because she's trying to, you know, like, kill off all mutants. But at the same point in time, you could understand where her madness and her hopelessness was coming from. This just skyrocketed her straight into, like you said, mustachio twirling, maiden tied to the railroad tracks villainy. And it didn't do anything. So that's my thoughts. I think if I had to choose a best moment from the Hellfire Gala, it's difficult because I was also pretty let down by this issue in general. I think the best the thing about our gala comic is the art. <laughs> I think there's a lot of really, yes. really great art. I think it's often jarring how it's put together because of the differing styles change from page to page, but overall the art is all really good and it was fun to look at. And narratively speaking, I think the best moment of the Hellfire Gala for me is just seeing Proteus get some agency for himself and some mm. character growth and to say like, to reject his constant role as like this dangerous, unstable mutant who anything can set him off and then he's an existential threat. I like him saying, like, I'm not going to be used for evil again. There's, for me, three things that I'd like to talk about. One, I think Raven and Nathan just put it very well. How disappointed we all are with Moira, so that's one. And unfortunately for me, I read Immortal X-Men before the Hellfire Gala, so perhaps the biggest review of the Hellfire Gala, I already read it, so I was just like, okay, here it comes, here it comes, but it was, didn't feel that good. I'm talking about the Sinister thing and Dr. Stasis thing from Immortal, which it's not good or bad, it's just that I already knew it, so it, I felt nothing when I read it on the Hellfire Gala. And perhaps one thing I did like, and we all knew that she was going to be on the team, and that's Firestar, which just uh, throwing it out there, I'm not a fan of the Spider-Man and his Amazing Friends show. I've barely read anything with Firestar in it, but I'm very intrigued by the idea of someone that's mutant but not Krakoan being on the X-Men. And perhaps that's the only thing that I can take from this Hellfire Gala thing. It's but it's not really a Hellfire thing. It's something that's going to be explored, and I'm not sure if we have the right team to explore it going forward, but we'll see. I don't necessarily love the team. I think it was, like, Iceman and Firestar. Okay, cute, but, like, haha. Like, imagine... I meant the uh, creative team, Nathan. Sorry. What's up? Not, not the actual expert. <laughs> It was kind of cute, like, but also kind of annoying getting John Hamm treating Emma Frost like she's slow from Progressive, <laughs> like, going after her, like, in the commercials. Did like Bishop in this issue, who is very, very Bishop. The team, I will see where the story is going to go with Firestar. I think there could be some very interesting stories told about her. I don't know if I trust that that's the place to go in depth about her issues with being a mutant in the X Men title since giving that it's been so, like, bam, 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 action 
action pack, action pack. And I, Wanda's appearance in this seemed very like, yes, she did create a, a waiting room for mutants and is now redeemed. But like for her to be the person who announces the X-Men vote seems sort of misplaced. Didn't she just do the waiting room thing like barely a couple months ago? One year, which, <laughs> yeah, but anyway. But I thought the creation of the Kurt Cohen waiting room was like literally like only done a couple months ago, like in comic books is what I'm saying. Yeah, but it was it was like days after the Hellfire Gala because it was right after she died. <sighs> which, again, this is this is why this did not work well for me. There was no distance. Yeah. Feels like you were the past Hellfire Gala was like three months ago, like in real time and in comic time. Yeah. It's been a tough year with, with publishing delays. We had the whole line basically taken down for Inferno. We had X Lives and X Death Wolverine be the whole arc for uh, like a, a month and a half, it seemed like. It's hard to square that this is a whole year in store. <laughs> At Bway3RD. It's Arturo. You can find me at Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram. Hey guys, I'm Drew. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at for 3 That's at Deary W-S-I-P-H-E-R-3. Hey guys, I'm Evelyn, the Comic Canary. You can find me at comic underscore canary on Instagram and Twitter. And I'm Kyle. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. That's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. This was the annual, I guess, Hellfire Gala. How did we feel? Who was everyone's favorite looks? And what were everyone's favorite slash least favorite plot points? So for me, it was hard to pick a favorite moment, but Emma Frost just killed it. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Stole the show. It was Emma's night. If you heard our coverage of one of the recent X-Men issues by Jerry Dugan, I said that this would happen. Emma would read the front page and say, that bloody stupid man. And be furious. And it fucking happened while Jumbo Carnation was doing her hair and she just looks flawless. And it's Emma's night and she was best dressed 100%. And I like that she didn't even need the stunts of multiple looks. She was just flawless. She really was, yeah. My favorite part was honestly when Forge nominated Havoc to the X Men team. Oh, that was fun. And Havoc's reaction to being nominated. That moment was so rankly, though. I mean, because it's supposed to be a vote, right? And then Forge nominates Havoc, who immediately gets on the team. Yeah. That felt like a controversy to me. I know. It felt kind of weird that they're just like, I nominate this person, and that person got in. My favorite part of the night was kind of the MJ of it all. You're talking about Moira Jane Watson? Yeah, Moira Jane Watson. (laughs) There's going to be like that Spider-Man event that's spinning off from that, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Speaking of Spider-Man, his outfit was sickening too. X-Men meets Couture. Like, I can't get enough of it. I have spent so much money on so many covers, y'all. It's embarrassing. (laughs) Worth it. But I just want to give a shout out to Ileana and Gwenpool, both like vying for their like their titles and like smooching up the writers and producers that were all like and editors (laughs) that were all like sprinkled in and like having their little moments and like the Sailor Moon moment that Gwen pool had was just my heart i wasn't sure that that was gwenpool i'm glad that you verified it for me (laughs) 
I thought it was really impressive. The human superheroes really stepped up their fashion game for this gala. Like they were embarrassed by their showing last year and like Victor Von Doom's outfit killed. And it reminded me so much of one of Emma's looks from last year, the very puffy kind of number that she had as her first look from the gala. And, you know, Steve Rogers is doing this like gangster pinstripe suit. It's just so sharp on him. And then flirting with Emma, who looks like his mother, which I think is very fun and strange. Shout out to Mr. Sinister for absolutely slaying with his like regal monarch. Oh, fucking sinister, honey. He might be morally bankrupt, but he will turn a look and a cape. It's very like the Sun King. I'm surprised he doesn't shave his chest. Hmm. They showed a lot of looks also that didn't really get featured. Like Gambit, Gambit was hardly in, in this issue. I really liked his look from like the covers and stuff, but he wasn't really featured in the issue. No. To, to be clear, 90 Sinister absolutely not only shaved, he waxed his chest, but Krakoan Sinister is kind of going for a more rough and tumble look <laughs> and destiny's there she's got the girls out in full gold honey the golden globes <laughs> i love it she's like honey i know y'all knew me as a lovely old lady with a sharp wit but now i've got body yadi yadi legs for days eat it the fire star of it all like the way Firestar entered the vote like the whole thing of it was kind of a, a mess and i'm happy with what they're doing with it at least you know addressing the butter rum of it all like that was kind of hilarious honorable mention to the sisters of the house of magnus lorna and wanda turning looks and i think wanda's look was designed by russell dodderman and it is flawless lorna looks incredible she's wearing this like a stole but it's that classic stroman like wavy magical perm and she has her little floating uh, crown that David Baldion introduced for the character. Her casual power flex where she's like, oh, this old thing that I just make hover around with no effort. Oh, I'm wearing purple. Is she a villain again? I'll keep y'all <laughs> guessing, honey. I love it. I absolutely adored the sequence of Emma and Scott dancing with the sequence of them dancing around not only their feelings for each other, but what they've both been going through. And like the audible gasp that Cyclops has is just hilarious to me. But I loved how they interwove the dancing with the information dump. It felt like a very authentic way to kind of catch up the readers on everything that's going on, because I feel like this is a good like point for like for people who might not be on all the X books to kind of understand what's going on and what's coming up for the future. Yeah, that definitely felt very organic. What surprised me about that sequence was it didn't occur to me that Cyclops wouldn't have known that already, but that information has been so insulated among the Quiet Council that it would like they're taking pains to make sure it doesn't get out, except Emma is using her discretion. I also just want to say I loved the scene with Proteus and the Five. They're often not the main characters in a book, except for X Factor, and so seeing them back and then seeing them take care of each other is really sweet, especially because they're a family in like a much deeper sense than the average mutants and that they work together and like their work is restorative and it's the creation and restoration of life you know that's probably great for Proteus's mental health I'm sure but just seeing Mora be like awful and think that's going to like destroy him and in fact the first thing that happens is his family comes running in to save him really speaks to kind 
kind of the heart of X-Men as a franchise and also the heart of the Krakoan era made me happy. Yeah, definitely had like a found family thing. And again, the five prove that with all of the faults and flaws and cracks in the firmament of Krakoa, the five really are like a pure kind of good at their core. They're trying to do the right thing always. I could use like a book centering around the five. Marvel, if you're taking requests, please. (laughs) It's also very funny that Moira's like dastardly master plan for the Hellfire Gala was to go and just like like put the freak out on her son and then she left. It's kind of wild that Emma clocks her like at the end she's like was that really Moira? She's she's getting very brazen. It's like this was such a weird gala like last last year which doesn't feel like it was a year ago especially in the sliding time scale. It was this huge announcement and it you know took uh, everybody by surprise even if it was uh, some people thought you know had different theories it was definitely more than anyone had hoped for this was strange because it's kind of like the announcement and like the news breaking over in x-men kind of big-footed this and it's just it was interesting the emotional tenor of it is different where the first one was marked by a lot of joy and celebration of, of krakoa as a nation and mutants as a people there seems to be a lot of tension here and a lot of like anger and eh, just like agitation in the air which you know i mean could absolutely be by design you know and i think it's reflective of that space that they're in where like you know the the dawn of x and the beginnings of the reign of x are such a celebration and it has a sense of like newness going into a kind of triumphant spirit and now i feel like they're dealing with the consequences of their various actions and like the messes they've made including one moira mctaggart and i think that's like important not that this is the kind of you know underworld portion of the hero's journey but i do think it's them kind of wrestling with the the things that they have intentionally or unintentionally created you can see orcus's hands in a lot of things going on well not just orcus you're seeing a lot of the humans starting to push more away from krakoa as krakoa gets more powerful and it, it makes sense but at the same time we're rooting for krakoa to 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 succeed and <sighs> right but now it feels like having contingency plans you know to counter Krakoa maybe more reasonable than previously thought where that seemed more extreme and you know hatred and and phobia and whatever like it feels like there's this softening of the perception of it where yes there is still 100% that but there's also you know recruiting and trying to like lure other people that don't feel that way but can kind of see the potential for mutants just conquering those are Mm -hmm. all really really solid points and it really does kind of put a big question mark on on krakoa's dealings with the human population going forward and how humans are continuing to respond i am not surprised at all that moira went to the eternals (laughs) (laughs) well given where things are headed yeah
Hey everybody, Nico here one last time. It has been such a pleasure to hear the team transform over and over again with the creative teams on titles. So seeing how much of our team really has come to love this era of New Mutants by Vita Ayala and Rod Reyes, it is such a breathtaking new look at familiar, lovable characters in a way that focuses on healing and development like no book ever has before. I couldn't be prouder than to bring you this coverage. And I'm also proud to bring you guys coverage Monday, Wednesday, and Friday every week. MC2 Mondays, Modern Marvel Wednesdays, and XI4P premiere Fridays. You can also check out my original work in the Young Men in Love anthology, recently released for Pride Month, featuring incredible Marvel greats like Cena Grace, Terry Bloss, and Anthony Oliveira. Don't forget you can check out my original work at KidRiotComics.com, where you can read all about my original comic hero, Kid Riot. We also have a partner show, The Billy Club, which you can check out on YouTube at Hubs Plus, our incredible YouTube partner network, where we talk about all things Daredevil beginning to end, and you might even check out some amazing segments from XI4P Extended, featuring never-before-heard content, as well as new segments featuring your favorite collaborators. So until next time, guys, enjoy this last segment. Keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. Remember, if I sound a little tired, it is hotter than hellfire here. And we'll see ya. Hey everybody, welcome back to another segment of X's for Podcast. I'm your host, Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. That's P-E-A-K. And that makes me Raven, a.k.a. Dame Red Red. Come over and find me on Twitter and Instagram. Mostly Twitter, ranting about random things. Seriously, poke the bear. I love to talk about shit. And I'm Steven, and you can find me on Twitter at Steven of Wonder, and over on Facebook as an admin for the House of Northstar. And we hope you survive the experience, unlike maybe Colossus's empty husk. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that must mean we're covering New Mutants, number 27, written by Vida Ayala, with main story art by Rod Reyes, flashback art by Jan Dersema, flashback colors by Ruth Redman, and letters by VCs Travis Lanham. So, going from issue number 26 to old lady Ileana, which Marvel seems to love making their characters very old and gray. And she stuff, was which, so awesome. Oh. Right? To now getting a story focused on young Ileana, to during this time of when she was captured by Belasco and being trained and tortured in Limbo to become Sorceress Supreme of Limbo. I still don't quite remember what Belasco's full plans were, but he kidnapped a child and was like, but I'm going to train her, but also torture her. Well, yes, because you need a tool that you can bend, not one that's going to break you. That's very fair. Through this issue, we learn that Ileana, in her very young age, was able to cast a spell that transported her through the time and space, which is no small feat, but also very possible through Limbo, which is already in its own Jeremy Baramy, Wibbly Wobbly, Timey Wimey kind of you know, own section where Limbo floats wherever it wants to be and there's a lot of different things you can do with time travel with Limbo. Ileana gets to go on an adventure with herself, her older self, who we're currently following, through Wonderland. And I think this comparison of Ileana through Wonderland and through pretending to be not Alice, but the Mad Hatter, which was also a very fascinating take. But I would love to hear everybody's thoughts on this story comparison of Ileana and Limbo to Alice in Wonderland. 
Wonderland, which I think both the characters of Alice and Ileana share some really interesting characteristics and themes that I think really do work well, even though personally, I think using Alice in Wonderland, I think we could like let it rest for maybe like five years before we could come back to it. Because <laughs> I feel like it's always something that like a lot of media like goes to because, you know, it's public domain, it's iconic, mm-hmm. people know about it, you get to do a lot of weird things. But let's let it rest. But I would love to hear your guys' opinions on turning Limbo into Wonderland. I am so with you. Like, no tea, no shade. Like, I love that they use the analogy here. It works really well and everything. But I honestly would love to see like other works of fiction touched on. Like, like the vampire, which is everybody thinks, oh, you know, vampires are, uh, you know, kind of slightly more recent as far as fiction writing goes. No, it goes back several centuries. There are, you know, old works of science fiction that tended to be written by some really great women who often had to be using pseudonyms or pen names or anonymous just so they could get their work out there. So like, go out, find other works and please use them because while I love Alice in Wonderland to some extent, I think it's deeply overused and I want to see something different used. Although I will point out in this one, young Ileana is Alice, which fits. It's the older Ileana that is the Mad Hatter, which also very much fits. Yes, I agree with you both. When I first saw what was exactly happening, there was like a minor eye roll moment because, you know, in, in, in especially X books, I feel like we do have like an oversaturation of like these fairy tales always correlating to Wonderland or even sometimes mm-hmm. Wizard of Oz. And we have like other fairy tales to a lesser extent. I actually ended up enjoying it a lot more because I think that the artist really played with the visuals. Uh, like particularly with playing card minions, like they use the tarot actual suits, which I thought was really great. Like the coins and the chalices, the swords, like that was really fun to see. I think that the artist ended up doing a really beautiful job because so much of the scenery was quite stunning. And I do like that Limbo's landscape can change. I agree with you guys. And, and I did have that same moment as you both, but I ended up at least enjoying it. So I guess there's something to be said. And I do really like that, you know, young Ileana was Alice slash the little goblin and <laughs> and older Ileana was a Mad Hatter. I thought that felt that fit so, so well. I was very pleased mm-hmm. with it. Oh, absolutely. And I want to commend Vita's able to interweave the story of Alice in Wonderland mm-hmm. with this story of Ileana through Limbo, where it really works because the major themes of the original Alice in Wonderland were about identity, self, and growing up. And a lot of those themes really parallel Ileana's time through Limbo. And the only, you know, thing we're talking about, it's not Vita's fault that everybody uses Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, no, no. I really want to commend their take on this because I really did appreciate being able to view those themes through Ileana. And I want to talk about some of those themes of, you know, Ileana growing up and Ileana's identity where Ileana right now, the story that Vita's trying to tell us is that Ileana's identity is kind of like her soul sword was shattered. She is going through this really tough period because she doesn't want to be a associated with this place of pain and trauma anymore, but she is so inherently linked to it through her growing up, because Ileana didn't have a, really a very good or normal childhood, or like anybody else comparative in the Krukoan mutants. She spent seven years essentially being forcibly trained and tortured by this mad demon, which, call say whatever you want. I really love Belasco as the Red King slash Queen. Something about that look works for me. I loved the gender flip on that. It was so, like, ugh. I loved it. I really, really did. They 
Vita and their team just did such a good job. Yeah, I loved, loved how he looked as the Red, especially with like the slightly askew crown and everything. Oh my gosh. Like I said, the visuals just really were brought to life for me. And I love the fairy, the, like we see the fairy tale, but we then, then we get the other fairy tale in the background story, which was really great. Oh, absolutely. And I want to talk about some themes of growing up and identity. And how do you feel about this story? You know, the parallels of Ileana and Limbo and the parallels of Alice in Wonderland. How do you guys feel about this being the medium that we're talking about Ileana's identity and kind of her confronting how she grew up? For this story, it it works really, really well. (laughs) Everybody always goes, oh, yeah, if I could go back and tell my younger self one thing. Well, in this case, her younger self needed to find a hero that could save her. And she honestly she recognized that the hero that was going to save her was going to be herself so i mean that takes a huge moment of realizing that you have that strength in order to instead of going and trying to like look for somebody else to save you like she's like i need a couple of people to save me but i really need one person in particular and it was it was basically herself yes she brought her her brother along because she missed him and she needed to talk to him but like in the end yeah she she knew to rely on herself to save herself. And I love the fact that they, in this story, they used her younger self, not as completely naive, but self-aware enough that she's like, I know enough magic to do this, but I know that I'm not strong enough yet. So I need to keep working on it. So like, she's a very self-aware Alice, whereas Alice from the actual book seems slightly less self-aware to say the least. And then also the, the juxtaposition to being the Mad Hatter, which live enough life, especially with enough trauma and trust me you are going to feel like the mad hatter like you're losing your gd mind and just oh i'm i'm personally going through a lot of that right now and i'm like oh there is no more apt comparison than the mad hatter because the mad hatter isn't exactly mad they have just been kind of driven to the edge by all of the bad stuff that has gone on but they still have fight in them which is the beautiful thing and it was so wonderfully done in this book so honestly even though i go grumble grumble alice in wonderland i'm still going oh my god this is all so delicious this story from beginning to end really like vibed with me the one critique i will say is that i felt like there was a little bit of a a pacing issue at some points but other than that like i was just so here for the ride i love a story about iliana and now madeline even though i really really love for her stop being in that outfit um and thank you know what that actually goes for both of them to be quite honest with you because mm-hmm. i don't like the hot pants and the crop top on her but you know what anyway uh <laughs> i i just i thought that it was really beautifully told i agree i love that she pulled colossus because that was the knight that she saw in her head but it was really you know it was really her who had to save herself you know so i oh my gosh i just loved it so much and can we talk about the beautiful like going back to the original art from the classic story like yes. the way that was emulated spoke to me so much and it just gave me so much nostalgia and I don't always love nostalgia in my books but I've been living for it in New Mutants because Mm -hmm. even the regular art throughout the book is so reminiscent of the original New Mutants book. I love the fact that they are using or hearkening back to old, old, old school comic book art because it's a great way to tell you hey this story has partially taken place before. We are now giving you more information so it's, it's taking us back 
back, what, 20 years, 30 years at this point? Oh, God, I'm old. <laughs> yeah, oh my gosh, it is, yeah. So it yeah, really but it's, it's, it's a great way to like visually tell us that we're taking a story from roughly, you know, 20, 30 years ago, and we're going to give it a juxtaposition to our modern era so that it ties things together. And I love it. They did a really good job. It is not that artwork, like perfectly specifically replicated. It is that this is our art, but we still want you to know that we have not like just gone back and ripped panels. We've actually put work into making new art in this style. I'm like, oh, thank you for putting in the work. It's lovely. Oh, absolutely. I really do enjoy the original New Mutants art, but the way that they utilize lining is so different than how outlines and like pencils are done nowadays that I find it so charming. And I didn't grow up in this era, but it feels nostalgic because you're like, yeah, that's like what it was. It feels familiar and it feels comfortable. And a lot of people love going back to that. Yeah, it's the heavy outlines. Yes. It does, oh, yeah. yeah. I love, oh, yeah. I love that. Um, young Ileana calls, uh, is casting this spell to call for a savior. And we get, we kind of get this list and we don't have all quite all the details of what exactly the spell entails. But it reminded me very much of the Ten of Swords spell that Opaluna Satelline cast for true love. And how it wasn't exactly what was expected. Where Opaluna Satelline was trying to call Brian Braddock actually got Betsy. Ileana was calling for a savior and it's a very almost like beautiful self-actualization moment where she calls herself as the savior and I think it's something so inspiring that the younger Ileana was the one to tell older Ileana no I'm strong enough to save myself I just need to get to that point there's something so very powerful I think about that juxtaposition of not even the older version saying that the younger version has that realization Colossus is in such a weird state right now character wise and it feels like a lot of the ex-office isn't quite sure what exactly they want to do with Colossus. He seems to be in this really weird push and pull of like, are we making him an enemy slash traitor with Mikael? Is he fine? Is he just trying to be a farmer? Does he not want to do any of this? What happened to all of his art? I think he's still painting. But there's a lot of push and pull where it doesn't seem like they know exactly where they want him. But here in this book, I thought it was really nice because even though he isn't the main focus, I think this is something that Colossus deserved because uh, for those who don't remember, the last time Colossus saw Ileana, before she was forcibly taken in age, she was captured by Arcade, which is the whole reason why she was in America in the first place. It was Arcade's plan to, you know, toy with the X-Men, and then uh, Colossus became the proletariat, and it was very funny. And then in one issue, came back to his senses. But he never really got a moment to, like, reconcile with the fact that he lost his younger sister, who was age seven years, and there, there was, like, this whole time period where they didn't spend time together, and he didn't see it, it while it was a brief moment for him it was seven years for her and that's a lot of loss of innocence which is another really major theme of Alice in Wonderland I would love to talk about that their relationship because as far as I'm aware they haven't really interacted on Krakoa and Ileana seems kind of mad at him right now which I'm not 100% sure maybe I'm missing something or misremembering it makes some amount of sense that she's upset with him and like <laughs> like <sighs> how do I even begin there's so many thoughts around this like it's a huge thing but like so when I first saw the the retro art and you see the husk of Colossus I did damn near broke my poor little brain for a second because it's like this poor kid has been through such hell and Belasco knew what he was doing he made a, a perverse version of Kitty Pride that was you know this mean almost cat-like woman who just tormented her and you know she she had to work just to see uh, a remnant of her friend in her eyes like that's what kept her going was being able to 
save her friend. And then Colossus was given over to Sim and slowly tortured until he was just an empty husk, which definitely plays into why Ileana is both scared of Sim and also vehemently hates him. She He took her brother and, and made him into a husk. And so this kid has been sitting there basically playing or talking to a corpse for who knows how long. And, and this is her motivation. This is how she remembers her brother is being tortured into a husk. And you're telling me like some part of that doesn't mess with her mind, as it were. Like, I'm sure she's gone through the, you know, the stages of, of grief and anger where it's like, you know, I can't believe that you left me. I can't believe you weren't strong enough to, to hang on and, and at least try to save me, you know, versus the also, you know, I wasn't strong enough to save you. And, you know, there's a lot of like survivor's guilt that could be going on versus also a lot of like abandonment issues. So I can see where she is exceedingly stressed out when it comes to her brother. Oh, absolutely. And um, I, I listen, Colossus is hot. It works for me. And anytime oh, I get right. to see him. Especially with that beard. I mean, I could do without the beard. I want a nice smooth ride all the way down. Oh, well, just to have him smooth turn to metal. steel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that, oh God, that would be like a wire brush. No, my bit. That's my bit. R- ribbed for everyone's pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, goodness gracious me. Oh, my. <laughs> Speaking of sexualizing characters, Madeline, great segue by me, by the way. That, no. that was a good segue. Oh That's a perfect segue. You're not wrong. <laughs> Well, a lot of the Rain, Danny, Madeline stories, ancillary to the main Ileana story, they do have a very interesting conversation, at least in one of the white pages, about how Danny and Rain talk about their apprehension isn't because they're not fully... Part of it is they don't trust Madeline, which is fair, fine. But part of it is to seem that Madeline seems to throw certain blame on everybody else from their perspective, and this is not my words, this is in the book, Mm -hmm. that a lot of her evilness isn't because she had a choice in anything and danny and rain say well there there have been times where you chose to do bad and you don't seem to have remorse for it if we're giving you unbridled power without any regulation that causes some alarm because we don't know if you're going to make the right choice and it's (sighs) they sound like the men yes thank you raven thank you i'm so glad you said that like she (laughs) says he like like literally she has had zero say in her own stories she has no autonomy her resurrection was at the whim of of havoc you know like she hasn't been yeah she hasn't Mm. been able to make her own decisions and you know they want her to say all these things to 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 say that she repents or that she's sorry or that she's gonna help but like that's not who she is right now she doesn't want to give that to them because they haven't earned that from her even if she does feel it you know Mm -hmm. and quite frankly you know i'm i'm on board with iliana i think this is the right decision for madeline you know Mm -hmm. and i hope that the writers going forward you know do treat madeline with respect give her a new costume and also you know like show that she is changing and that she's helping because quite frankly she could be such a great force for krakoa you know the like of course iliana you know could have had that role 
as well. But at the same time, she was a captain and we never really got to see her do the magic thing and pull, you know, her limbo card very often, you know, but this could be Madeline's whole shtick. This could be Madeline doing that, you know, I think magic is such an important aspect that we're missing on the council itself, you know, so there's so many boxes to be filled here and Madeline could really, she could really fill so many roles if she's treated correctly going forward. I know this sounds demented, but basically Limbo is ma- is going to be, hopefully, Madeline's safe space. Yes. Like, yes, it, oh seems like, it seems like pure chaos, but there are certain types of trauma that need a certain amount of a, a semi-traumatic environment yeah. in order to process. And, yeah. and like, this is exactly it. This is a place where Madeline can process everything because, okay, so she's a clone of Jean Grey in a lot of respects, but she is very much her own person, but she has never been treated as her own person. She has always just been treated as a perversion of Jean Grey. And Jean Grey is the Madonna. Madeline Pryor is the whore of the Madonna whore complex. And that's how she's always been treated. It's like, oh, okay, well, A, we're going to throw you into this costume and keep you there for 30 years. And B, we're going to like, we're going to make you blow through pretty much everything with a heartbeat and a penis, you know? And then, oh yeah, we're going to put you into situations where you're going to basically be sexually assaulted. And it's like, again and again and again and again and again, she is treated as just a thing for men. Agreed. And, and yeah. I'm so fucking done with it. Like, I am I am slowly becoming obsessed with Madeline, and I am very much becoming a Madeline stan, because I can understand her anger and her just vitriol to being controlled, because it's always been treated as if she's just an extension to whatever man happens to be close by her in proximity for her life. And it's like, no, motherfucker, she's her own person. And she's now taking it back. And I'm, I'm fucking loving it. I'm like, by the end of the story, I was actually like, you know, honestly, if she wants to stay in that costume, I'm also okay with that. It is her choice completely. Just yes. <laughs> You know what? I agree with that too. Uh, absolutely. And I don't think there's really a better character for a writer to channel anguish and anger at the lack that women have had uh, with their agency in comics for plenty of years then Madeline Pryor a character that was often very similar to Wanda in the sense that they are they were often basically tools to justify a story where their agency was really called into question where they're doing these really questionable things that writers would make them do or they would have them in these scenarios with these male characters and it feels like they were never really able to be themselves and I think Madeline Pryor is a great character to channel that anger at the past and really confront what that means when we look at it through a lens of today and I, I really am excited to see where Madeline is going to go because I also want to remind everyone in the audience that Madeline Pryor as the Goblin Queen as this clone of Green Grey was not the original plan that is not what Chris Claremont had intended when Madeline Pryor was introduced into the X-Men this was nowhere near what he initially sought after with this character she wasn't supposed to be a clone it's all weird it's all wacky <laughs> I do love like how they treated the characters in this story, especially like Danny, Rain, Madeline. They do have poignant conversations and they still, I love that they kept like the character voice. Like they didn't make anybody seem out of their norm, but they still gave them a lot of beautiful character growth, like on page. And they kept Madeline sharp witted. Oh, I just, I love her. Like, (laughs) did you just walk into a trap? I absolutely agree. I think that Vita uh, has such a great, 
great handle on these characters. And in another parallel to the Alice in Wonderland, Ileana is able to reform her soul sword, but it is very different looking than it was initially. And in the storybook page, they call it the Vorpal Blade, which is the weapon that Alice uses to defeat the Jabberwocky, which is now being represented by Belasco, which I also love. I think it's fascinating and great. Ileana's sword has been very fascinating because it seems like there isn't a specific consistency. I've seen multiple artists depicted as a thinner blade, some depicted as uh, being like like a bastard sword, like it's too heavy that it has to be wielded with two handed. Ileana seems to be able to fling it around like it's a long sword sometimes. I would love maybe like a definitive, like this is the style we're going for. You can artistically represent it however you want, but like this is the, the blade we're modeling it after. I love the fact that the blade changes. It's her soul. They told us that that is not the final form of the sword. This was a one-time. She was able to coalesce the, the the pieces of her shattered soul because like Belasco was sitting there going, oh, you're just, you're broken. You're shattered. Look at, you know, all these pieces. And she's like, oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, you shattered me. That's for sure. But these, uh, the jagged edges of broken glass can be used to cut. I'll show you how sharp the edges are, you piece of shit. Like she straight up said, oh yeah, no, no, no. This is part of my broken soul and I'm going to slice you straight fuck open with it. And then later on it is noted, no, that's not the, like the final sword. She was able to coalesce it for a strike, but this is not the final reformed vision of what the soul sword is. But I do love the fact that it's changed yet again, much like she is. Right now she is a little bit broken and she's putting those pieces back together. And so I can't wait to see if it's going to be a mutable sword or if there's going to be just a very different look to it like how they're going to make this new one and i'm oh here for it i agree i almost like would love it if it just changed every single time like that would be very cool because you know like people do change people grow you know you're sometimes you're just not the same person from one day to the the next you know uh and she just like epitomizes that for me oh yes i can't wait uh Recently over in Jane Foster and the Mighty Thor, Jane actually takes a trip to Limbo, which uh, that part's fine. I have nothing wrong with that. She goes to go see Dr. Voodoo and Dr. Voodoo says, okay, this piece comes from Limbo. It's not supposed to be here, but I don't know how to get you to Limbo. He specifically says oh that. Oh my God. And I said, how the... she she works at the school. She works at the academy. <laughs> <laughs> Nico knows how very mad that moment made me. Jane is in Limbo and she's currently confronted by Sim, which I find fascinating. Wow, but since I would, the new Wolverine, I guess. Uh, apparently. <laughs> but I would love more of that, especially when you have a character like Desi who comes from Limbo. I would love to see her make a brief appearance. I think this would have been a, maybe a decent time to like have her drop in, you know, comment on what's happening, something along the lines. It's something of, I like when books get to intermingle and I like when we see that connectivity. You know, part of the fun of what should be the fun of the Hellfire Gala is that literally everybody across Earth 616 is invited. All these different heroes from all these different books, even though it seems like everybody still resides in manhattan (laughs) yeah you know get to see how they react to characters in this book because we don't always get to see everybody's perspective of what's going on i mean yes i mean i could honestly honestly i could talk about this book forever and and this this arc with magic has been so fantastically done like huge props not only to uh vida ayala as as the writer but reyes everybody who has touched this book like the letterers are amazing 
the sound effects in this one were so good i loved it the art is beautifully done and you gave madeline prior emotions other than angry she looked so wonderful when she was concerned when she was you know when she saw the love between like uh peter and and little Ilya. it's like oh my god she she has emotions she's touched she has empathy like she i think i saw her smile i'm like and not an evil one i'm like it, they are doing such good work with all of these characters and i like the fact that they're not just treating them as if they are there to push one person forward they are all getting development and it, it really really makes me feel good and it makes me love this book more yeah something that i really love about this team is that i feel like the expression between the art and the writing uh, mixes very well i really love a lot of the focus that has been on danny even if uh she's not really been in like the, the central focus of the book i feel like we still have her voice i want more karma that would be the only like critique that i personally have because karma is my favorite of the new mutants next to magic i think that this book has really surpassed like so many expectations because i think it really hit its stride they're really modernizing these characters and really you know talking about these characters pass in a way where we can say hey this was actually kind of messed up to do to a character let's talk about that let's talk about these ramifications because i don't think many people are doing that with their work and with their media especially if it's a continued media like comics you know let's talk about the past and let's talk about how you know characters actually feel about it because i often noticed in comics terrible things will happen to characters and then they won't talk about it for like 50 issues and then maybe one time it'll get brought back up and then it will never talk about it again and like no if this was a real actual person this would probably affect them for a very long time we should probably talk about this right therapy it's not just a suggestion Thank you.